We have been exploring the question of who are we? Uh, important question to kind of come to grips with to understand uh, what makes us who we are. And it helps us grapple with our heritage of the things that we've been given, all the things that have gone on before us to kind of sort out all that stuff. We're going to deal with it in some way or another, whether we're conscious of it or not, uh, whether we're reacting to it or we're going along with it. Uh, it's, very, it's very important for us to consider this. And we're looking at this question in terms of who we are as Christians and specifically who we are as members of Churches of Christ, looking at how we're going through kind of an identity crisis in the faith as we see the general cultural ideas going toward an idea more of uh, Christianity has been tried and found wanting, and, and Christianity is something that is seen in society as, as something negative, as something to be derided. Um, even if we understand that these things are not true, we're dealing with living in that kind of, of, of place again. And as members of Churches of Christ, what do we stand for? What, is there any use to maintaining any kind of distinctiveness? Or should we just be like uh, the rest of evangelicalism? And really, we're asking what about the restoration plea in the 21st century? Is there still a place for it? Uh, is there really reason to, to continue to uh, maintain such a call? And I hope that we've seen that, yes, there's a lot to our heritage that is worth preserving. That, yes, there is something to the restoration plea that is worth maintaining even now in the early 21st century although we've had to do a fair level of critique of some of the ways that some of the ideas have come about and how they've been taken. And today is no different. Today we're going to look at the call to speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where the Bible is silent. You might just think that makes complete sense in the world, that obviously that's the way we should do things, but it's good to look at it. Well, should we do that? And uh, how might we fall short of it? And how does that work out and what should we be doing instead? So why should we speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where the Bible is silent? Well, it's because we're supposed to base everything on the Bible, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? Well, and hey, by common confession throughout Christendom, the foundation of our faith and practice is in what God has spoken to the fathers, to the prophets, and what he has now made known in Jesus to the apostles and the associates uh, of the apostles. And Hebrews 1.1, really talking about what's been left for us in Scripture. So yeah, you talk with everybody, everybody in Christianity is going to say, yeah, we, we should use the Bible. But a lot of places in Christianity, you've got other sources of authority or instruction that have been advocated and have changed the way people look at things. Uh, so some have specific authority figures that they look to to provide further instruction. Uh, maybe it's an individual. Uh, who has been inspired, they believe, or a group of people who have been authorized to make pronouncements that are believed to come from some kind of divine decree. We see this in some apostles, so to speak, that you see in a lot of Pentecostal churches. Uh, the Pope, uh, the Ecumenical Council of the Orthodox Church, the uh, apostles of the Latter-day Saints. Uh, and so these, these individuals, by whatever means, come with proclamations and people observe them and follow them. Uh, a lot of other such people seek authority either in documents or tradition. We talked about the creeds already. And people look to that for some kind of authoritative uh, understanding. Uh, or maybe just the Christian tradition overall. They're looking toward uh, things in the tradition, their particular stream of the tradition or tradition in general, to, uh, 
to demonstrate authority for the things that they uh, teach and believe. Today we have a much more pernicious version of it. And that's the very strong and wide belief that, you know, we're just much more advanced than those primitive people back in the first century. And so we understand things better. That's the, the conceit of our age. And therefore, a lot of people very explicitly, but also a lot of people implicitly, are just kind of correcting the faults of that time. Well, we understand better now, so we're just going to do it this way now, even though it was done that way then. Now, throughout all of those views, in some way or another, whether the people who hold to them admit it or not, they're suggesting that the Bible is insufficient of itself, that it requires additional later enhancements. You need other messages where the text is silent, they're challenging things where the text is talking, and so on and so forth. And so because this is not new, by the way, this has been going on for hundreds of years, that is why the call went out to speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where the Bible is silent. Because that's where we have a, a, a really strong grounding in the idea that what we say should be grounded in some kind of evidence of something God has actually communicated. That's how we honor the idea that the Bible is supreme as the standard for Christian faith and practice. That we're willing to give it that standing, not where it's clear and obvious, but especially where it's not. And where there is disagreement. Because what's the problem with having creeds or having um, these later people or having just believing in the body tradition or, or what or that we understand better than they do all of them are claiming authority where god hasn't given that kind of authority and it's these additional claims of authority that prove very divisive because well what if you disagree with what this guy's saying now there's a new group and it's led to all kinds of divisions and factionalism in christian history now if the bible were upheld as the primary standard of authority the idea is that Christians could find unity in the faith in Christ as proclaimed by the apostles and their associates. We wouldn't have to be fragmented in all these different groups that are espousing the claims of these different preachers or these different uh, groups based upon culture and these other things that have been going on. And we could go through and look at all these different individual authority figures or the tradition and things like that and point out the, the flaws in all of these things that... Nowhere in the New Testament did God give the Pope a special dispensation of authority. Uh, nowhere in the New Testament do we see that tradition should be the, the thing that determines everything uh, for everything. Yeah, there are places to uphold the things that the apostles taught and did in their presence, but we also see the Pharisees and what the Pharisees did with tradition. And that was not something commended at all. And as we've looked at with creeds, all of these documents prove sectarian. They're, 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 they're delineating who's in, who's out, and they require precise formulation, uh, which is not necessarily always based in the spirit of God. So it's also very interesting to note that when we look at, okay, what do the earliest Christians think should be the ground of authority? They always go back to the words of the apostles. They always go back to the words of Jesus. They themselves are testifying that the writings that we consider the New Testament and Old Testament are the basis upon which everything we believe, teach, and practice. So, 
when we say we are to speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent, the Bible is silence, we're um, reminding ourselves not just of the centrality of the Bible in our faith in terms of understanding what we're supposed to do, but also as a reminder of how easily the Bible can be distorted. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter warns that uh, the ignorant and unstable rest and distort the, the scriptures. And that's what you see in the Christian tradition, right? You see people justifying just about anything with scriptures. You got people on both sides of arguments arguing scriptures, and they've got scriptures that they can argue. If you've ever had an argument with somebody on about religious subjects, if they have any level of understanding, there's going to be scriptures involved. Uh, the devil quotes scripture, Matthew 4, 6. He's quoting Psalm 91, 11 through 12 to Jesus about uh, falling and the angels will, will protect you. Uh, so that's why in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says that we need to be diligent to present ourselves as workmen who don't need to be ashamed to rightly handle the word of truth. And where if we kind of keep ourselves to speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent, the Bible is silent, we're going to be much better at doing that than, than otherwise. You might think this sounds so intuitive, but what does it mean to speak where the Bible speaks? To understand the power of speaking where the Bible speaks is to recognize that what God has made known in Jesus and to proclaim the whole counsel of God is of the greatest importance. To speak where the Bible speaks requires good and effective interpretation. That we seek to first understand the text in its context and then to be diligent to make accurate, incisive, and appropriate application to the modern context. Sometimes it's that interpretation process that gets in trouble where people say, well, I'm speaking where the Bible is speaking, and they're trying to draw applications to their modern context, but it's a very warped and distorted application to the context. And all of a sudden, you're not really speaking where the Bible speaks. Uh, this Bible doesn't say anything about that. You're just making that work because you want it to work. Here's the thing. The preacher of the Word of God can't help but notice that there's been 2,000 years since the things that we proclaim have been written. And not only has it been 2,000 years since these things have been written, there have been a lot of people who have thought about these things and have written about these things. A lot has gone on in those 2,000 years. And that is going to come to bear about how we understand things. Now, there are some who want to live in the denial of the tradition. They presume that everybody since the end of the apostolic age until you know, the 19th century uh, and the restoration of the ancient faith were in so much error that you just can't use any of their writings, that there's nothing much to be gained there. That's one extreme. And of course, on the other extreme, in the more historic denominations that try to say, hey, uh, tradition is singular. We have this one body of tradition and we should always defer to it. We should not really question it. We should go along with that body of tradition. Uh, that explains medieval Christianity and the way the Reformation played out. And in order to make that work, they had to kind of fit, force it to fit into this kind of progressive narrative of progressive understanding and development of the faith. Uh, that if you explore the primary documents, it becomes very clear that they're fitting, they're forcing it to conform to this uh, narrative that they've set out beforehand because, uh, well, tradition is noisy. There have been lots of people arguing about things in the faith for thousands of years. Lots and lots of argumentation. So, it's very easy to go to the extremes on these things. 
we're going to have to avoid those extremes because the greatest among us, to be honest, have realized that you've got to participate, interact with this greater conversation going on in this tradition about these scriptures. That truth can be found in some of the most surprising places. Just because somebody uh, teaches error on some issues doesn't mean that they've completely missed everything. And oh, by the way, just because they are a preacher of the Church of Christ doesn't make what they say infallible. And in fact, sometimes some of the most disappointing commentaries I've ever read have been written by people who are fellow brethren. Do we therefore just accept whatever has been told to us in the past? No. But we should at least give pause and hear what the various voices have said about passages and about the faith and tradition. Because, yes, maybe we can see where they've gone wrong in some places. But maybe when we read what they're seeing, we can see that, wait a second, they're looking at this completely differently. And it's mostly because they're in a different time, a different place, a different culture. The way I'm looking at it is, is being framed by my time, place, and culture. And maybe it's me who's having the interpretive problem here. Maybe I'm the one who's not really speaking now with the Bible speaking, but just justifying my cultural biases uh, in my reading of Scripture. And it's much harder to see those blinders when you have blinded yourself off to most of Christian tradition. Uh, it's a lot easier to see your perspective issues when you're kind of comparing uh, other viewpoints uh, throughout time. And if you look at many of the commentaries that are written that are of, of the greatest quality, uh, you got guys in the past like Campbell or, or Moses Lard and others, and, and they're engaging with Luther's commentaries and Calvin's commentaries. That doesn't mean they're Lutherans or Calvinists. They would strongly disagree with many principles of Lutheranism and Calvinism. But look, you can't get around Augustine, for instance. He's one of the most brilliant people who ever lived. And sure, there's a lot about his interpretation of scriptures that, that we have reason to disagree with, but uh, I certainly will never consider myself of the mental caliber of Augustine when it comes to the things that he was exploring. And there's things that you can learn from him. Just because we disagree with him on some things doesn't mean that everything he says should be thrown out. And that's true about all kinds of voices. Where in the end, if we're going to say, nope, all of this needs to be shut off because they were wrong about this or that, we're the ones impoverished. We're the ones who are closing off how we understand things. And what happens? We only listen to a certain group of people, and all of a sudden now we're in a bubble. And all of a sudden things seem completely logical and find us. Everybody else looks at us weirdly because we've now justified something in a bubble that doesn't take a lot of effort to pop and to realize it doesn't have a lot of standing. And so, does this mean that Christian tradition is authoritative? No. But it does mean that you need to at least give it a listen. At least consider what's been said before that may help you in, in, in seeing your own issues and, and blinders and, and enhance your understanding. Because let me tell you, lots of smart people have seen things in the scriptures that you haven't seen yet. And you can access those things by reading and using critical discernment skills. To speak where the Bible speaks is also putting the emphasis where God put the emphasis. Not on what the preacher or the church or what the culture wants to emphasize. That when we speak where the Bible speaks, we're centering everything in what God has done in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That our faith, our words are to be shaped by the cross. 
You see this in Paul's writings. Look at Philippians 2 and 3. Look at how Paul looks at everything. It's all shaped by what God has done in Jesus. And so the preacher needs to put that emphasis on what God has made known in the prophets and in Jesus. To point back to the authority of the scriptures. To magnify that authority at the expense of themselves, their tradition, and their culture. Yes, the best thing a preacher can do is to get out of the way and to put the emphasis on the message and the power of that message to shape life and faith today. A preacher is one who is not only under the authority of God, but also therefore given the boundaries of what God has made known in Jesus. Again, do we really believe in 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 that the scriptures are sufficient to equip the man of God for every good work? Do we really believe that? Well, of course, you're in church. You're going to say yes, right? All God's people are going to say yes. But, really, a lot of times, it's what we think is right, or the new cultural fad, or an ancient, or oftentimes less than ancient tradition, or some other idea that's really the driver, right? That this is the idea someone has, and now we're going to slap scripture on that idea. And whenever that's what we're doing, we're not speaking where the Bible speaks. We're speaking where I want to speak, or the culture wants to speak, or tradition wants to speak, and slapping some Bible on that. And those are very different things. But when the scriptures are the driver, it's going to be a lot harder to veer off course. Now, does that mean external examples or resources are useless? No. Does it mean we can't refer to other things? No. Does it mean we should give up topical preaching? No. But if Paul is right in Colossians 2, that Jesus Christ is the treasury of all truth and knowledge and wisdom, then whatever is true, whatever is wise, whatever can be known is true because somehow they're manifesting the truth of what God has accomplished in Jesus in some way. That it is somehow reflective of the way God has made the world in Christ, about what God has done in Christ. So it's true because it's true in Christ. It's not true because we slapped some Bible on it. That's a very different thing. So that's speaking where the Bible speaks. Now, being silent where the Bible is silent, well, sure, right? We all agree with that until, again, we don't. Because people have been very quick to rush in to speak where God hasn't. If anything has happened in the past 2,000 years, it's that people are very comfortable talking where God has not. So many new doctrines have been made, prejudices and behaviors have been justified, and cultural values projected because there was silence, and then we just imposed all of that in that silence. And a lot of people get really frustrated at God's silence, right? And humans don't do well with that because we just get more rebellious and belligerent that way. God, I have this question that God doesn't answer. I have this question that God... Why is there so much evil out there? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there evil? Or name your question. And they just insist on it over and over again. They never stop thinking, wait a second, wait. maybe the problem is with the question. Do people ever stop to think that, that maybe that God hasn't really been silent, it's just that you're not approaching it the right way? And that when you change the question, for instance, why is there evil, to 
what has God done about evil? Now, the whole Bible's talking about that question, right? God has sent his son to die on the cross to overcome evil. So you can uh, overcome evil in him through suffering and through uh, humility and by not participating in it. Well, okay, now all of a sudden that's a very different compelling narrative. But we're blinded to that because we're just hammering that, well, God was silent about this. That there's some kind of insecurity there. Uh, well, I have these questions. God has an answer. There must not be a God. What? So that's what goes on sometimes. But a lot of times, it's just sheer speculation. People who are trying to fill in the gaps in the story, however well intended. This is kind of what Paul is getting at in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Israelites develop all kinds of stories about biblical characters. We call them Midrash and Midrashim. And there's books of these stories. Like the book for Genesis is like this thick of stories that were told about people in Genesis. Well, why do you think there's a book this thick about stories that you can tell about people in Genesis? Because do you have any stories you can make up about Adam and Eve and Seth and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph? You can make up all kinds of stories, right? And they did. And, you know, they try to tell you moral stories in these stories. A lot of them are interesting reading. And to this day, people have all kinds of questions. Like, where did Cain's wife come from? Right? Or, what happened between Jesus' birth and his ministry? And whenever you got those kind of questions, somebody will start making up stories to try to teach whatever they feel like teaching about it. And all of, somehow, some of these stories end up becoming just accepted ideas as if they're just as equivalent to Scripture. And what ends up happening? Do these speculations engender faith? Does anybody really ever, you know what, if God just told me how Cain had a wife, I would just accept the whole thing. No. No. These questions don't lead to faith. They're just leading to all kinds of disputations and quarrels, and they can never be answered. They're not really helping. It really tells you more about the people speculating than it does about the text itself. Now, when it comes to authority, silence is neutral. It doesn't justify. It doesn't condemn. If God has authorized something, there may be aspects of how we do it that are left as matters of liberty. And the fact that God is silent about specifying about it means that we have various ways of doing so. And that's not a cross to bear, as many people want to make it out to be. They want drawn lines. They want it clear cut. But God's speaking to people who's going to use the message different times in different places. And guess what? This way that you draw a line here may not be where the line should be drawn in a different culture, in a different place, a different time. That's why there's the freedom involved. So to not chain us down to his particular expression of how to do things. But when God has specified a matter, then yes, silence is restrictive. If we're going to start adding things, we are going beyond what is authorized. That's the principles we get in Romans 14, 13 through 15, Hebrews 7, 12 through 14, many other places. But what God's silence should give us is a place to reflect. 
to consider how biblical principles could be brought to bear on a matter. But there only can be reflection if we stop to respect God's silence long enough to shut up. And that's our problem. We want to fill the space with words. And we don't want to, as James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. No, we're real quick to speak and slow to hear. And sometimes it's that silence that forces us to shut up for a minute and think about why that silence is there. Because when, the, when we're silent, the Bible's silent, we're recognizing, hey, there's only so much I can know. And not only is there so much I can know, what I know is dependent upon what God has made known already. I'm not the one making this up. If I am, it's wrong. I can guarantee you that. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul will emphasize this word of the cross, this message of Christ crucified, this is, this is something spiritually discerned. This is something coming from the Spirit. No man can make this up. It has to be made known by the Spirit. We can use our natural faculties of reasoning to understand what God has made known in the Spirit, but we can't use our natural faculties of reason to invent or to come up with what God has done in Jesus. When we're silent, when the Bible is silent, we can wonder if maybe that we're asking the wrong question. That God's not really silent. That maybe we don't need to know. Maybe we need to think about it in an entirely different way. Because ultimately, when we're silent, when the Bible is silent, we understand this is not about filling the void with words. It's not about having to know. But realizing that whatever we are to know is to lead us to trust. And that when we trust God, and we trust that Moses is right, that the secret things belong to God, but he has given us what has been made known for us and our descendants forever, that his ways are higher than our ways, and, and his thoughts and our thoughts, that we're trusting, well, I don't know the answer to that, but either God does, or God's got control of it, and I can put my trust in him and not have to worry about it. Because a lot of time those questions speak more to our fears, our insecurities, our anxieties, than anything about God, really. So that's why we should speak where the Bible speaks, remain silent where the Bible is silent. I hope that you can see why. It can't just be some kind of superficial uh, slogan that we use, but it has to be a deep and profound commitment that we respect the authority God has invested in the message has been proclaimed, that we are just humble vessels of that message, that we're not going beyond. Because... A lot of people will say, oh yeah, we should speak where the Bible speaks, we should be sound the Bible sound. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, absolutely. But the danger is in that pretense, yeah, we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent the Bible is silent. We're totally only speaking where the Bible speaks and we're silent when the Bible is silent. When in fact, a lot of the times in reality, we're silent where the Bible speaks and we speak where the Bible is silent. And that's a great danger that we need to consider. We would never imagine that we would be silent when the Bible speaks, right? Why would we be silent when the Bible speaks? That's our pretense. That's our presumption. But it does happen for a lot of reasons. Why would we think that certain things may not need to be proclaimed? Well, certain ideas of the faith, or certain parts of the faith some people think, don't need to be proclaimed because everybody understands that already, right? We all understand that you should stop sinning, right? So we don't need to talk about that anymore, right? We just know that we shouldn't use instruments, so we don't need to talk about that anymore, right? Or pick whatever issue you want to do that. 
Sometimes we might think certain issues are too arcane or certain aspects of the faith just aren't as relevant and so they don't get preached. But implicitly or explicitly, a lot of ideas or issues are just beyond a given preacher or Christian's view or perspective. Why don't you hear a lot about predestination in churches of Christ or about grace? Or A lot of times because, well, that's what our opponents emphasize. And so we don't want anybody thinking that we're sounding like a Calvinist or something. And so that's why we end up not speaking as much about election, predestination, or grace as we do about choice, obedience, and things of that nature. Right? Uh, why don't you hear a lot of times preaching on how we should take care of the poor? Or what certain issues that are uncomfortable because... <laughs> the political opponents or secular opponents emphasize those issues. Well, we don't want to give ground to them, however implicitly or explicitly uh, we're talking about, it, even though absolutely the scriptures speak about them. And it may involve aspects where, you know, people just assume that what the culture thinks is true is true, and therefore we don't need to talk about it, whether or not that's true or not. But of course, there's the, the, the concern that, that no preacher really wants to admit, but there's the whole like, well, this is kind of my job, and if I step on toes, I might not have a job anymore, where there's certain sins that we're just not going to talk about. We will condemn the safe sins, those things we're not dealing with. But when it comes to the sins that, you know, or the tendencies that are harmful that actually might go on, he's talking about me, and I don't like it. We're getting rid of him, so we're not going to talk about it. That is certainly part of that reasoning that sometimes gets used. And beyond that, you can tell a lot about a psychology of a preacher or Christian by the kind of examples they give and what they omit. You know, I'm talking about, if you've read a standard article done by a lot of preachers or a sermon by a lot of preachers, this is how it goes. There'll be a biblical passage talked about, right? And there'll be a pretty decent, generally, interpretation of that passage in its context. But when it comes to the modern application, or in the midst of talking about a list of sins or things of righteousness, certain things will get mentioned, right? Somehow, whatever we're talking about always leads us to certain distinctive issues. Like, these people transgress, and that's why we shouldn't use instruments. Or, um, these people did bad things, and we have bad things today, like uh, abortion, homosexuality, or pornography, or immodest dress. Right? Have you noticed that? There's always a certain list of things that we talk about in those examples. And look, I understand, but it, it shows the psychology, right? Because whatever those examples are, are the things the person's thinking about are the bad things. You know, how many times have been really examples... These people fell away. That's why you need to keep coming to church. As if coming to the assembly is going to dictate your faithfulness. Right? That's a big hammering home issue among us. For better and for worse. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to find ways of interpreting and then applying to the modern context. I'm not necessarily saying that even those applications are necessarily wrong. But when that's all you ever talk about, there's this whole range of things you're not talking about. Like, I don't know, racism. 
Sexual assault and harassment. How can we always yell about immodest stress? We never yell about sexual assault or harassment. Well, because we all know sexual assault and harassment are wrong. Do we? Do we get that message across? Are we sure about that? Awkward, right? That could be something I could be found guilty of. Or, or, or worse, some craven vixen's going to say I tried to sexually assault or harass her when I really didn't. I'm going to be innocently framed. And all of a sudden now, we're more worried about the 1% or 2% of guys who might be accused of something they didn't do and therefore treat the 98% of women who have been abused like dirt. Where did that come from? That's a cultural prejudice getting baptized by what is not being said. How did white people in America go for hundreds of years without really being challenged in the way they treated other people? Because no one ever talked about it. Even though the Bible spoke about it, Christians were silent where the Bible spoke. And so you need to be an equal opportunity offender. This isn't to say we should stop condemning these big bad sins that our people are doing. But it's also an invitation that when you're saying a list of sins, don't just include adultery, homosexuality, abortion, but lying, cheating, racism, sexual assault. Uh, things good, normal, upstanding Christians could actually be guilty of. When you're talking about the whole counsel of God, it needs to be the whole counsel of God. It needs to indict the political liberal as, and the political conservative. It needs to indict the person in American Western culture, the person in an Eastern culture. It needs to have the, the holistic part of it because otherwise it's very easy to find it, become silent, where the Bible has spoken. And when you look at how Paul lists out sins in like Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, do you have the big sins? Oh yeah, you got those big sins. But you also have the sins that the people there are actually maybe guilty of, like lying, right? Contentiousness. Outbursts of anger. Yeah. And they're put on the same level. We're not sitting around trying to say, look at how these people are worse. And well, you know, you want, we understand we got these issues, but those people are really bad. That's not how it works. And did Jesus or Paul step back from pointing out the sinfulness of the people and what they needed to change? No, they walked right into that. In John 8, the Jews are starting to believe in Jesus. And he went and told them that, you know, if, if you uh, know the truth, you will, you know, be, you'll be set free. And like, wait, we're, we've, we've never been enslaved. And he's like, yes, you are. You're a slave to your father, devil. You're not listening to me. Not good PR. Telling the people who are starting to believe in you that they're the sons of the devil, not good PR. But it was true. What was more important, the PR or being true and being faithful? In Acts 13, you know, the Jews, once that Paul started preaching to the Gentiles, the Jews got offended and started to contradict him. Did Paul say, well... This isn't really working for this demographic, so I'm going to shift a little bit and be silent about the Gentiles. No, he still proclaimed the full gospel, even though it led to persecution and difficulty. The word of God is powerful, like it's supposed to do in Hebrews 4.12, right? But it can only do its thing when it's proclaimed. When you say silent about something, it's not doing its thing. And that is why we need to speak where the Bible speaks, all the time, whether it's comfortable and especially when it's uncomfortable. And don't even get me started about what passes for what makes people comfortable and uncomfortable. That'll be a different sermon, and I don't have that much time. All right. So not just, of course, being silent where the Bible speaks, but also being, speaking where the Bible is silent. 
Well, that's what we do, right? We, we, we are silent with the Bible. Silent. Well, yeah, not really. A lot of times we kind of string out our inferences. We can justify in our own heads, right, that this is true, therefore this is true, this is true, this is true. We're now at point D, and we're saying the Bible says we can do point D. You open the Bible, you're never going to find point D. It's just a line of inferences. It might be true, but the Bible didn't really say that, right? In fact, sometimes the worst words are, the Bible says, because then the words after that generally aren't what the Bible says. We've got to be careful about that. But beyond that, we also can easily fall into uh, speculation. Uh, think about a lot of the things that we end up talking about a lot in church, right? Or that people want to talk a lot about church, like uh, worship stuff, right? Uh, the instrument thing, right? Um, what the church would do with its money, right? Uh, Bible say a whole lot about that. Here's the funny thing. If the Bible said a whole lot about that, we wouldn't have to say so much about it, would we? Right? What I've started to notice is that we preachers tend to fill in the void of our insecurity because the Bible's not as clear or explicit as we like, and we really emphasize and hammer home the things the Bible doesn't talk about as much. That we're really talking a lot about something the Bible's silent about. Like instrumental music, right? The whole argument is God's been silent about it. Are we... Really? That silent about it? We talk about it over and over and over. You'd think from how we talk about it, God wrote whole books about the subject. But the whole point is that God didn't. Right? Now, I'm not saying the Bible is entirely silent about these things. And I'm not saying that we should be entirely silent about these things. Look, uh, people introduce instruments. We're going to have to address the issue. No argument. <coughs> We've got to deal with what kind of clothing we should wear or what's going on in our society that looks nothing like it did in the first century. Okay, we're going to have to go to the Bible, see what the Bible has to say, and draw appropriate conclusions for our own contexts. But we should stop and think for a second, if the Bible's so silent about it, why must we keep filling that space with words? That maybe we overemphasize things because we're a little insecure because the Bible's not as clear about it as we would like for it to be. Again, this is not an invitation to wheel in a piano. Don't want anybody to be confused. But uh, people who come in notice when all of a sudden you say that we're a church talking about the Bible and the stuff you're talking about isn't really in the Bible. And this doesn't even begin to talk about the times where people are talking more culture and less Bible. And all kinds of things get said in churches that have no biblical basis. It's just culture. It's getting baptized by the Bible, even if it's getting baptized by the Bible. Truly, as Jesus uh, condemned in Matthew 15, 5 and 6, uh, taking, uh, making the, your, your traditions a command, you know, as commandments of men and, and binding that upon other people, against this idea in Colossians 2, 8 through 10, that we're supposed to be grounded in Christ and that everything we say comes from Christ. So when God is silent about something, or when God doesn't emphasize something like we emphasize it, it should at least give us pause. Because if God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, and the scriptures are sufficient to equip us for every good work, what have we missed? Why are we emphasizing certain things because we're insecure and we're afraid about them, and are trying to, however, consciously or unconsciously, make up for God's silence on a matter? 
And that's why God's silence should give us reason to stop and to think and to recalibrate our emphasis. Because Paul and Jesus kept emphasizing, this is what God has done for you. This is how you should act. And a lot of those things we take for granted, we don't talk about them, like living righteously and avoiding sin in its holistic picture and what Jesus has done for us. And to keep going back to it, not just for, hey, hey, this is the truth and we know it and we're great because we're right, right? But to like, no, we need to keep grappling with God died on our behalf in Jesus, that the way of getting past evil is suffering it because that's what Jesus did. Those things we constantly need reinforcement because we're constantly tempted to get derailed about that. And what do you notice if you just stop and actually just read clearly what, what Scripture teaches? Over and over again, that's what's getting emphasized. Re-envision your life according to what God has accomplished in Jesus. Look at how Jesus has lived in holiness and modeled that. Look at the things that are condemned and why they're condemned and don't do that. It's not sexy. It can seem kind of boring and dull. Those books written about that uh, by preachers are not going to become bestsellers. But that's what's needful. That's going back to speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent. That our emphasis is on what God has actually said and we don't have to emphasize the things God hasn't talked about. Because we realize if God were as concerned about it as we are, he might have possibly could have actually spoke about it. Yes, aspects of what God emphasized are contextual. Certain things are going to be emphasized in the first century that we're not going to emphasize now. Yes, we're going to have to use Scripture to draw out principles, and we're going to have to say some things about these issues on which God is silent because humans have not been silent about it. But if we're going to do that, we need to always make sure that this isn't me just pontificating because it's fun, that no, this is anchored in Jesus. See, this is how we know it's anchored in Jesus because these are the things that he's taught us, and that's how these things apply to this circumstance, even if we don't have explicit discussion of this circumstance. Because when we're doing that, we're trying to get back to, this is where God has spoken and we're speaking, this is where God is silent, and we're not trying to speak there. There's power in that premise. There's value in that premise of rooting what we teach and preach in what God has said, and to respect God's silence. And we need to be on guard against the dangers of being silent where God has spoken and speaking where God has been silent. And therefore, let us speak the words of life that God has given to us, that we should not add to them or take away from them, that we embody that message of Jesus to obtain the resurrection of life.